You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. It will be posted there every week. This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So last week, I told an April Fool's joke that apparently not everybody got. Uh, I was joking that Randy was going to hunt on a high fence ranch in Texas exclusively for exotic species next year. Uh, which is pretty much the exact opposite of what Randy built his entire brand on. So I thought that was going to be kind of obvious, that included with the fact that I said we were hunting narwhals. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, no, we're going to be hunting public lands in, in the West next next year. So everything we do is focused on public land hunting on our own for native species. But anyway, it was a good week for me. Went out with uh, my wife and my parents and Kara's mom. We looked at some wildlife, looked at snow geese, we found some bighorn sheep. Yeah, snow geese thing's pretty fun. Uh, watching thousands of, of geese get up at the same time, it's, uh, it's very cool. And uh, bighorn sheep, always been fascinated with bighorns. I'm pretty sure this is the year that I'm going to draw a tag. I'm up to a solid 1% chance, so definitely my year. Feeling it, feeling real good about it. Meanwhile, Matthew was on the Oregon coast salmon fishing pretty jealous again. He caught a Chinook salmon from the shore, and if you're unfamiliar, Chinook salmon are probably one of the tastiest fish on the planet. Dale was out helping with a new project that Warriors in Quiet Waters has going on. So Warriors in Quiet Waters is a super cool organization. They help uh, post 9-11 combat veterans get in the outdoors to have really cool experiences. Primarily they've done this through fly fishing trips and different fly fishing experiences, but now they're dipping their toes into the hunting realm. So they have this new program, Hunt for a Purpose, where they have eight veterans who are going through this program to learn archery elk hunting. Uh, they're gonna be going out this fall. Randy was also out there giving several seminars. Bo and Kirsten Beatty were out there teaching about various packing and backcountry skills. Uh, we're definitely gonna keep you updated on this as, as they get closer. Pretty, pretty cool stuff. Exciting news about Bo Beatty's tent. He finally released it. So you can go, you can buy this tent. He's been perfecting this design for the last few years. Super cool tent. It kind of fills a niche between a wall tent and a traditional backpacking tent. It's this lightweight canvas hot tent. Uh, thing is amazing. I am a huge fan. There's not really any great options in that category. Kind of this lightweight canvas hot tent and uh, Bo filled that niche nicely. Bo has more experience in the backcountry than anybody I know. Uh, just the number of days that he spends out there, and not only him, but running an entire crew of guides concurrently, uh, taking clients out, they go through literally thousands of tents. So they know what works and what doesn't work, and Bo is able to just look at a piece of equipment critically and just like, this works, this doesn't, this would be better. He's just really good at it. I mean, don't get me wrong, we still use the nylon tents for sure, but it just depends on the application. It's hard to beat the Hillbergs for an ultralight bomb-proof design for backpacking, and then the seek-out sides and titanium stoves for an ultralight hot tent. But there's just something different about being in a canvas tent with a real wood stove. Just the breathability, the durability, the heat retention, having like a real wood stove, I mean, it just allows you to dry out your gear way more efficiently. Don't get me wrong, nylon tents still have a sweet niche, but this one, if you can, if you're taking stock, if you have llamas, horses, whatever, this tent is is where it's at. This thing's also turned into my uh, go-to car camping tent. Uh, we took it on our deer camp last year. Uh, we had a traditional big canvas wall tent set up, and then we had Bo's tent, and got in some super high winds, and it pulled the stakes on the big tent, almost blew it away, 
And Bo's tent was still just sitting there, never budged. Yeah, he's calling it the Mountain Den. And then he's also ha he also has a bigger design, the Continental, uh, which I have yet to use, but it's, I think it's the same general design, just bigger. They are expensive, but any high-end piece of equipment is expensive. Bo has put a ton of time into this. It's for an all-around car camping or pack tent that's bomb-proof, that you can have a wood stove in, that's less than 100 pounds that you can actually fit in your vehicle. That's another thing I really like about it is it just fits in my pickup. It doesn't take up half of the bed of my pickup. Normally, I don't get very excited about pimping out gear, but this, this I am excited about. So check them out. I'll put the link in the description. Next week, I'm going to be on vacation with my dad. We are going turkey hunting, so there will be no Fresh Tracks Weekly next week. Uh, but hopefully, the following week, we'll have some updates and a little hunt recap, hopefully some photos. But for now, we're on to some headlines. So, no net loss on DNR lands in Georgia. A bill passed that was signed by the governor that will prevent the loss of any acreage on Georgia Department of Natural Resources land. If you're unaware, public land can often be sold into private hands. The most notable areas where this happens is on state lands. Some states have already sold almost all of their land, while others still have a lot. It just kind of depends on the political climate and the philosophies of whoever's in power. Uh, people have different, different ideas of what is best for the state and how they should manage their lands. But within each state, there's usually a state land board, and then there are state game and fish agencies or Department of Natural Resources. So these are two separate things. You have your state land board, which has a different mission statement from the state Department of Natural Resources or Fish and Game Agency. Generally, the state land boards, their mission is to make revenue. They're trying to make money often for the school systems, while the Department of Natural Resources or the Fish and Wildlife, they are managing lands for the wildlife or for fisheries or for public recreation. They just, they have different goals. So that's this kind of an important part of this. So often it's the state land boards are the ones that are selling, they're more often the ones that are selling land, but it can still occur within state Department of Natural Resources, Fish and Game, they still sell land as well. So this bill that was signed in Georgia was amending the law to where the Georgia Department of Natural Resources cannot lose total acreage of their current land. If you are a public land hunter, fisherman, recreational user, this is a big win. In Montana, a judge recently upheld a previous decision in favor of the Forest Service who had been sued by several sportsman groups for not acting appropriately with historic easements across private land. There has long been access issues in the Crazy Mountain Range. There's a checkerboard pattern of private public land, Forest Service land in particular, that makes it difficult or impossible to access the public land. So historically, there have been these prescriptive easements which I'll be honest, I don't fully understand. But basically my understanding is that they are right-of-ways that allow people to cross the private land to access the public land, usually on a road or trail. So the big kicker is that these prescriptive easements, there's no record of it on the deed of the private property. Kind of seems like it's just a handshake deal between individuals a hundred years ago and the people who made those handshakes are no longer around. So in recent years, when private landowners started to say, hey, no, you can't cross this private land on these historic trails, that's when we started to hear some headlines about this issue. This has been going on for years, and there's been a lot of moving parts and different, different pieces to the story, and there's definitely some unknowns as well. These groups sued the Forest Service, saying that the agency needed to uphold the historic prescriptive easements. 
but the government did not hold claims on the private property and then the judges gave various reasons why they decided to side with the Forest Service and the landowners over the sportsmen's groups. So members of the various sportsmen groups voice their concern that this sets a bad precedent for any other trails that cross private lands. But the Forest Service attorney was saying that it's not a broad policy change and they're going to continue to look at each case on a case-by-case -case basis. With the Crazy Mountain example, there has been some compromise already where the trails have been rerouted to still allow access, but not every trail, and it, there's a lot of moving parts. And I'll be honest, after reading the ruling, reading multiple reports, multiple articles, talking to Randy about it, I'm still incredibly confused. Um, as a public land hunter, I definitely want there to be more access. It's easy for me to root to have these trails be allowed to go across private land. It's hard because there's a huge value in maintaining relationships between agencies and landowners in order to get things done. And um, it's just sometimes one side or the other gets an upper hand and it can get messy. That might sound kind of like a nothing burger, which is where I'm almost at on it. It's, I don't know how to feel about it. So other news, an article was recently put out on the Wildlife Society website that discussed a recently published study in the Journal of Wildlife Management talking about wolf pack size that I found super interesting. So the study took a look at wolf populations and pack dynamics in Montana over the last 14 years. And the reason why it's so interesting is these date ranges showcase different levels of management uh, through hunting. In the beginning, there was no hunting, and then starting in 2009 through 2011, there was restricted harvest allowed, but there was no trapping at the time. And then in 2012, there was more liberalized harvest and hunting and trapping. Uh, and, and bigger bag limits, essentially. The study showed that there was a number of things that affect pack size and the likelihood that wolves will disperse into new areas. So one of the things is that when you take out a leader, one of the alpha or dominant wolves of the pack, this often can cause the other ones to disperse. And they didn't really go into the details of whether this leads to more wolves overall or wolves over a wider geographic area, but it definitely makes me wonder. If you take out that leader, are there gonna be wolves in a bigger area, more? I don't know, but kind of an interesting thing to think about. And then the other thing was looking at the different levels of management. So in the beginning, when they had low bag limits, they determined that there was no effect on the population. It didn't matter. But once the 2012 regulations came out that allowed liberalized harvest through more trapping, longer seasons, bigger bag limits, they were able to have an effect on the population. So hunters can have an impact with those 2012 regulations. I just find this stuff super interesting because it's just really nice to know what's going on with the wolf population and how hunting impacts the pack dynamics and the total number of wolves. I don't know, super interesting. My debut on uh, Fresh Tracks Weekly. Yeah, this deeper dive uh, got Mike, Mike P, Michael Parenti, talking about fishing, little fishing things. If you guys haven't seen, we have a series called Any Fin Goes. Pretty fun. Yeah, we're it's on, a ton of fun. How many episodes are we on now? We, we just released our fourth one. Fourth episode. Working on the fifth. Yeah. We're, I think we're going to release all the, the upcoming ones, though, in spring of 23. Nice. Yeah. That's kind of the plan. But we're going to be filming this spring. We've already started. We've, you've talked about it on the show prior. But we went up and tried to get a bunch of cool B-rolls catching lake trout, which was an absolute uh, failure. Except you did get get one on the tip. <laughs> we got one really small lake trout. We're not done with that one yet, though. But we're yeah, we're gonna, gotta go catch some more lake trout. That's definitely on the yeah smallmouth bass, native uh, native trout, possibly a carp in one. 
Yeah. We're, we got a lot well, of ideas. Then, so the whole idea behind the series is like we got to have some entertainment in there, of yeah. course, but then you got to mix in some education. Absolutely. And we've been trying to tell. There's like a bunch of cool stories about Montana fisheries. Mm-hmm. They're just like, I don't know, just weird things that we've done, stocking new, new species in, and then the creation of new fisheries like through reservoirs. And just yeah. a, there's just endless stories to tell. And that's like what made me think of this was one of the recent things that happened is it's not really recent, but they're starting to catch more smallmouth bass way up the Yellowstone River, which is not typical. Yeah, I mean, like, totally not. It's like a trout fishery. Oh, for yeah. The, for the most part. It's blue, like very blue ribbon, like yeah. picturesque. Like every, if you talk to a trout angler, the Yellowstone, especially the upper parts near Gardner and through Paradise Valley, those are like epic trout waters. People come from far and wide to come fish those. Even going into the park and you get those Yellowstone cutthroat, like the pure strain of them, which right. is pretty sweet. They're very cool fish. And it's interesting because those, the lower stretches of the Yellowstone is like a complete warm water fishery, right. you know? Well, so, the smallmouth have been there for a long time, or yeah. for quite a while in the lower Yellowstone. But yeah. to get up into, I mean, there, somebody posted a video on social media just holding up a smallmouth, like, I don't know, not very far from Yellowstone yeah. National Park. Which yeah, is, I, I think And that's, was, what, I, that's what started to raise some hackles of people like, oh, this isn't good, this isn't... Yeah. This isn't great, but we should get Duncan to talk about that. Yeah, we, we need to get we need to get Duncan and, and then also Rocky. My, yeah. my buddy's a fisheries biologist as well. We got we got a couple of contacts in of ours. Uh, Mike Duncan, fisheries biologist in Bozeman, and then Travis Raymond. Yeah, uh, Northwest Montana. You guys have seen Travis in some of the hunting stuff before too. Yeah, yeah. So we gotta we're gonna get them in on it, whether they know it or not yet, but. Um, it's, I, I gotta say the, the whole thing about the Yellowstone, like that one that they caught way up, way up high, it's not really like that shocking. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but like the, just like with the weather we had last year, the, the warm weather and the low flows, low snowpack, no rain, right. like those fish, like they can definitely survive in warm water and they're a warm water species, but it's just a matter of time before they come up. Right. And, and the thing is, it's, I mean, people are, seem to be surprised by it, and it's like this big thing, but it, it's really not that surprising. It's not that unique. Yeah. Like, the rainbow trout and brown trout that are there are also not native. Yeah, that's and true. So I think yeah. a lot of people don't think, it's just, I don't know. I, I, these, are what the, these are why these stories are so interesting yeah. to me, because like, people have shifting baselines of what they find acceptable and what they find as normal. Yeah. And I'm in, I do that too. Like, I don't want the smallmouth there. I'm like, when I saw that video, I'm like, oh man, that's, you know, that's not good. But yeah. it's like, I don't know. When it, when there's so many examples of it, you got the rainbows and brown trout, you have the lake trout that have invaded in the whole, in the yellow, in Yellowstone Lake. I mean, it wasn't invaded, they were illegally introduced there. And then you have wa- illegal walleye introductions. And all over the place. Yeah. All over, really. Yeah. And then same with smallmouth bass. There was an illegal introduction, like, not too far from Livingston. Mm-hmm. And then they were getting into the rivers. It's this, uh, and it's, it's just funny, though, because, like, yeah. Yeah, just not, wait until. It's not it, yeah, good. Yeah, wait until the, but, wait until it becomes, like, a good smallmouth fishery and then see what happens to the classic, anglers and see what, how it changes. Classic shifting baselines here. <laughs> And so, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm like a hundred. Yeah. I'm a huge proponent of 
maintaining native fisheries especially oh yeah and it's like there's no doubt that the rainbows and browns like it's a huge industry it's a huge thing we yeah. should try to maintain that too but i don't get nearly as excited or worked up about that as i do like a native cutthroat stream yeah, exactly. or like restoring a native grayling population or cutthroat sure. like that's way cooler to me than um than some of this other stuff but it's like crazy when you think about like the water bodies just using montana as an example like I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a very high percent that have invasive species mm -hmm. in them, if not the invasive species being the primary species. In yeah, it. yeah. Like the vast majority of our water bodies. Sure, like, and, well, it, and the, I'd and say 90% of our trout, or our bodies of water that people fish and come here to travel to fish mm -hmm. for are invasive. I mean, if it's trout, it's, right. you know, some places it's walleye, you know. Well, yeah, and then the reservoirs, like yeah. that's an, Reservoirs are so altered that yeah. it's like you can't really expect there to be only native. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, but it's a it's a completely altered landscape mm -hmm. anyway. So it's like okay, what you know, whatever. Let's put some mm -hmm. walleye and pike and perch and whatever in there, which none of those are native to Montana. No, yeah. like our native species, like in the eastern part of the state, would be stuff like the pallid sturgeon. Shovelnose sturgeon, both of those are native. Catfish, right? The channel catfish. There's a bunch of little minnows that I don't know all the names of. Um, and then um, sauger. Sauger are they're which are like a walleye, but they're the native yeah. version of it. Gold eye. Gold eye. I'm I don't not sure about gold eye actually. I think they. Uh, well, that's it. Somebody can let us know let down low. We're not biologists. Yeah. We just well, you kind of you get a biology degree, but. Oh, I, I was a technician. I. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I think a lot of people also get confused, and I always did, even really before I moved to Montana, that, like, yeah, the trout are wild, but that does not mean they're native. Like, they are, they were not here. Right. The, the yellow, or the cutthroat were. There's the West Slope and the Yellowstone cutthroat. Yeah. Right? Yeah, basically, and, depending on what side of the continental divide you're on, yeah. the Yellowstone are native on the east side of the continental yeah. divide, and the West Slope are native. And I think they're... I can't remember if there's maybe a few exceptions to that, but in general, the west side of the continental divide. And then I think there's a red band trout too up in north. Yeah, yep. There's I a think, little think. native population up there. Yeah. And then we have the native bull trout, which True. is kind of yeah. uh, mostly northwest Montana now. It used to be further up that Clark Fork drainage and everything. But uh, yeah, it's crazy to look at, like, to look at a map and just think about what fisheries are actually native versus non-native anymore yeah. and the vast majority are filled with non-native fish mm -hmm. and it's just yeah so when you see smallmouth going up the river you see pike going up the river it's just like temperatures are getting warmer it's yeah it's inevitable it's just a matter of time and yeah i don't and undammed like the yellowstone undammed like right there's nothing stopping, nothing those stopping fish. them from going all the way yeah. to yellowstone falls if like they, somebody's yep. going to be catching a small like yeah probably within our lifetimes people for sure within our lifetimes yeah. somebody's going to catch a smallmouth bass unless there's like a crazy I wouldn't doubt that they might like do some sort of weird or yeah something to separate out the. I don't know. It's interesting. It's yeah, fun that, to that, think about. But. That's the big thing, especially about that Yellowstone fishery too. Is like because it is a stronghold of the native Yellowstone. That's like pretty concerning, I guess. For you know. Right. Yeah, and it's a. I mean, the Yellowstone. They're trying to maintain this like natural landscape yeah. and everything. Yeah. So I'm sure there'll probably be some mitigation there, but. Yeah, what do you got going? I mean, so we got the lake trout stuff we're kind of currently working on. We need to go do a trip up to Flathead Lake. Yep. 
that's the next plan for lake trout. Yeah, we're gonna try and take up my jet boat that I just purchased a couple Ooh, weeks ago. See if it, see if we can sink that thing in big water. So um, uh, yeah. I well, just, then Rocky. Right, well, hopefully, I keep calling him Rocky. Travis, my friend, has also got a boat, so yeah, we might. We'll see. Going to do that. Uh, going to Fort Peck uh, Memorial Day weekend with some of my friends from across the road over at Meat Eater. We're nice. gonna do some. Uh, uh, walleye. I want to catch a pike. I got. I've been on a fly like, rod or just in general. No, I've been. I've kind of actually like gotten away from a lot of fly fishing just recently since I got in the boat because a lot of the waters that I'm like now able to fish have walleye. Have some of them have bass. If you go, there's like a, a really like far. Like this is not going to happen, but there's pike up in an area where I want to go. Uh, try this weekend and so it kind of lends itself to conventional tackle especially if you're fishing for a population of pike that's technically not supposed to be there we'll see and if there is i'm gonna bonk one on the head for sure but uh <laughs> that's a great fresh snack segment yeah right well, like, yeah, yeah so we'll see <laughs> we'll see i'm kind of going off a rumor there but just i've been keeping track of all my days this year i fished i fished 46 so far yesterday was my 46th day and uh, I'm trying to get to 200 this year. We'll see if it happens. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm so, sure. just That's, been going as much so as I can. Like, you're like keying in on the non-native species right now, like these invasive. Right species. now, yeah. Like I'm just. It's been. We've had a couple warm days here in Montana, so it's starting to feel like spring a little bit. And I, I need to kind of knock myself back a little bit because this weekend it's supposed to snow. But like when you get those warm days, it gets you thinking about like just. Uh, different opportunities especially with like a new boat you're able oh, to yeah. go to some reservoirs that you never like it's not as appealing to me to go bank fish a reservoir but now i have a, a mode of transportation to get me to cool spots right it's got a trolling motor on it i, I got my fish finder from uh ice fishing that also works so it'll be cool once you get it all set up we'll have to go out and do some fishing together we we wind up fishing a few days outside of work together every year, but mm -hmm. now that we got the boat, it'll be fun to take out after work and stuff. We can just rip up some of these rivers around here um, and fish some cool spots for sure. For sure, yeah. No, and I one of the stories for any fins I'd like to do is carp too. Yeah. Both, I want to shoot them yeah. with a bow because that's a, I've done that before. Mm -hmm. I've bow fished them, never caught one, or I think I've caught a handful on rod and reel, but not on sure. purpose. Just yeah. when we're out fishing for other stuff, you randomly catch them every now and then. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's, and there's this whole like fly fishing community yeah, that's getting I, all excited about yeah, carp I'm too, like, which I find it's, it's just one of those yeah. stories too, where it's just like people get so jacked on these big, weird, bottom feeding, invasive carp. Yeah. But apparently they're really fun to catch. Yeah, to a trout angler, it's, or to like a fly fisherman, I should say, or woman, it's like, from what I've heard, very similar to redfish fishing. I've done some redfish fishing. I've never been successful at it. But it's like really uh, shallow water. You ha like mid, like it's better in the summer when it's super hot. They come up super shallow and they tail and they eat like little bugs on the ground. So you j it's real stealthy. You got to stock up on them. And you gotta put the fly right in front of their face. They're not easy to catch. No, and they're they're a, they're a riot when they're on a fly. Right? Like that's oh, one of the fish that like every single time you catch one, it'll pull drag or it'll pull. Uh, like I've had them take me to my backing several times. It's pretty sweet. And like when you're when you're fishing for trout, that doesn't happen very often. I mean, sure you you go to some spots and there's some big big fish, but. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fun. Well, but yeah, I'm excited to shoot them too. I have no remorse for shooting those things because they're like they're just all over the place and. Yeah. Well, and I just love that species in particular for telling a story because talk about such like polar yeah, yeah polarizing views from an angler perspective yeah. of like there's like this huge redneck scene of like you have carp derbies where you yeah. just go out and just shoot as many as you possibly mm-hmm. can, kill them all, and then throw them in a dumpster at the end of the day. Yeah. Versus like a fly angler who get are I, there's probably people watching this who are worked up and don't like the yeah, fact that I'm sure. talking about it because yeah. they're like, oh, I don't want to exploit the carp fishery. Yeah. Like, We're gonna have which to is be, like this no, funny ser- to me, but it's a thing. Yeah. Like, people ha- are really secretive about <laughs> I have some friends that, like, spots. I'm kind of worried about for when we do film that. It's like, we're going to have to be kind we'll of... We'll have to go yeah. to a, a fishery that people, you know, we'll yeah. have to drive We'll just be careful about how we film it, but... Yeah, because, like, I was at fly tying night the other night at one of the local fly shops here that... And I was telling them, like, you know, I bought... I, I told them I bought a new bait caster, and they all just, like, started laughing at me and making fun of me and stuff. It's like, these dudes are, like, really serious about it. And it's, it's kind of... It's pretty cool. Like, I mean, I, like listening and hearing anyone's perspective that has like a really like dedication to whatever it may be so yeah no and this within the angling community you have such a diverse like look at or take on stuff sure yeah. and it's like there's huge like just like the trout fishing like in bozeman we're surrounded by the trout fishing mm-hmm. it's a huge industry yep and then you go to eastern montana i'm not even eastern montana but just parts of the state big reservoirs walleye angling is ridiculous yeah like how much money goes into like people buying boats and fishing equipment and just whatever just like the the economy benefits greatly from these different forms of fishing and very different types of individuals doing them too yeah different ethics like a, Uh, a, a prime one is like trout fishing you never fish for fish on beds like never oh right like you never fish for like you never fish for them on beds and like not saying i'm not bashing anyone if they do but like that's the viewpoint from a fly standpoint a fly guy standpoint it's like the most taboo thing to do um and then you look at like the elite series bass master guys like half of their tournaments are spent when the fish are spawning and like how can they have electronics that they can like see where the fish are on their beds and like they just dangle them right in front of their face nobody cares about that it's so funny to me yeah but Super fun, yeah. So I, the the Any Fin Go series is there's endless stories like this that yeah. I love trying yep. to tell and like articulate these different cultures, I guess, mm-hmm. angling cultures around the fish, and then also some of the cool landscape stories like the reservoirs we've created, the different fisheries, how they change over the years, and shifting baselines on how people approach a mm-hmm. a fishery. So yeah, check out Any Fin Goes if you haven't seen it. It's yep. like one of my favorite things that we get to work on it's a lot of fun and we spend a lot of time on it and yeah we're pretty proud of it so check it out we'll probably link it down below and we've got four of them so far and i don't know if i have a favorite one the paddlefish is always pretty fun they've all been fun yeah they've all been pretty fun but yeah yeah all right well anyway thanks for watching uh if you have anything you want to share with us you can email us at weekly at freshtracks.tv and we're going to keep uh keep going